All right, biohackers, who doesn't love a yummy, creamy whey protein shake? Oh, it is such a treat. And I really love it as a meal replacement, post-workout recovery, maybe even a midday snack. So this is why I have to tell you about Puri Protein Powder. I absolutely love the bourbon vanilla flavor and the chocolate, but I think I got to go with the, the vanilla as my favorite. So it's smooth, it's delicious. And you know what else? It's pretty awesome that the flavors come from real natural ingredients like the bourbon vanilla seeds from Madagascar. And let's talk about quality because there's a lot of junk whey protein on the market that I would not recommend. So the Puree whey protein, it comes from pasture-raised cow's milk with no hormones, no GMOs, and no pesticides. This is because Puree's mission has always been to be the best at offering pure, clean, and superior products that, that support health and well-being. And what I think truly sets them apart is that they are fully transparent with their product testing. Every batch is third-party tested against more than 200 contaminants and certified clean by the Clean Label Projects. Not all brands can say this. Plus, each product contains a QR code so you can personally scan it and review the test results at home. I know you're excited to try it out. So what you're going to do is head on over to puri.com slash biohackerbabes. That's P-U-O-R-I.com slash biohackerbabes. And then make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes at checkout to save 20%. All right, let's get back to the show. The point is being able to predict, measure, and then take action. So knowing those 39, you know, clinical values, metabolites, proteins that make up that omic age and affect that omic age, we'll be able to quantify all of those by just looking at this epigenetic data. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and check movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode number 208 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Renee and I have my co-host here today with me, Lauren. Hi, Larry. Hey, Renee. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Yes, this is a show. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> we have an incredible guest coming on for you today. We have Hannah Went with True Diagnostics, and we are talking about one of my personal favorite topics. Sorry, I totally nerd out when we say like the words biological age and just different ways that we can measure this and epigenetic expression. This is just so, so fascinating to me. I'm like, you know, what do we need to know to live a long, healthy life? And a lot of uh, Hannah's work and research is figuring that out for us. So kind of gave that away. We're talking about all the different ages and clocks and what we can do there. But before I jump into more of that pop quiz for you, Lauren, today, which one lifestyle factor will, will you focus more on after today's episode to optimize your health span? Well, she definitely scared me about alcohol. Like, <gasps> I I already feel like I have a great relationship with it because I know that I don't feel good drinking 
a lot of it. It's definitely quite conservative in my diet, but I don't know. I guess the audience stay tuned to hear what she says, but certainly going to keep it in the forefront of my mind if that's something they're really seeing an imprint from. So I think the goal yeah. is less and less, less and less, less and less, and just making sure that my body can handle it. And I think we don't need to wait for a test or to have these predictions. I do think that the subjective markers around like, is it impacting quality of sleep? Am I less productive the next day? Is my brain a little less focused and sharp? That seems to be evidence enough. Like if we're really going to be truly honest with ourselves. And I, I just think back to that episode we did with James Swanick a long time ago when he calculated the amount of time spent, like the deficit that we accrue by drinking and what we really gain by not in such a micro minute level. And so, you know, her advice today, certainly just kind of move that into the forefront of my mind is my answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like everything else. Yeah. I mean, there's just like so many things in my life pointing to that maybe needs to go completely. And we talked about this recently when we were rooming together at the biohacking conference. Cause I just, I feel like I have my diet. Ah, you know, your diet can always be better. Right. But I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on that. My exercise, my sleep, my stress. Like, I feel like I'm doing all those things. I don't smoke. Yeah. I would say like alcohol is the one thing that stood out and, and I'm with you. Like I definitely don't perform as well the next day. If I have one or two drinks, like that, there's not even an argument there. And actually, so this is funny timing because yesterday Ryan and I were at the grocery store and we just bought a new pack of these like adaptogenic herbal alcohol-free drinks. It was the only one that was really low in sugar. So unfortunately, most of the ones on the shelf were like 12 to 16 grams of sugar, but this was only three. Oh, really? Because it looked like you had an incredible wall of options. I was so jealous. I was like, look at all they have to choose from. But I guess you turn it over and the options decrease based on sugar, carbohydrate, maybe other ingredients. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to replace like my tequila on the rocks with a fruit juice. So yeah. I know. And then I also have literally coming in the mail today. I'm like waiting for UPS to show up at my front door with a box of these canned drinks that are, and you're going to love this. It's kava and kratom blended together in a can. I know you're not a huge fan. <laughs> of I know, I know, but like, but that might be one of the better al- alcohol alternatives because you definitely get a state change. Mm-hmm. So. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to interject for just a moment and kind of play devil's advocate and and then, you know, create context. I think we should definitely talk about this more in another episode. But I find it really interesting, just kind of a personal anecdote with alcohol. I don't drink a lot. I'm quite conservative. I also have, I feel like a low tolerance and have to be really mindful. But, you know, there's this idea that alcohol kind of lowers inhibition, which can make you more talkative. And I find even just from a relationship standpoint, with Jeremy and I, when we need to be in conversation and just chat through things that could be potentially helpful to our relationship, deepen our connection, doing that in an environment where there's a glass of wine or or a cocktail actually really kind of emboldens that process. And I find maybe even similar to the way that psychedelics can work, where we really kind of foster a deeper connection because of that. I think with like the little bit of less, a little bit less of cognitive control, become more talkative, a little less inhibition. We end up sharing more, I think, from the heart. And to me, that's really valuable from a relationship standpoint, because what are we on this earth if we do not have connectivity, interconnectedness? So I'm always working on relationships. So I think we do really have to have good, right relationship with alcohol. But 
if we're controlling for all these other factors, which we get into in the podcast, is there a space where that actually could help with relationships? And you made a really good comment about that in the in the research. Like, are we seeing that some people do well with it because they're more in social atmospheres, less isolation? So I don't know. I think there's a lot that we still have to learn. And I think there's absolutely a massive personal component here. But just kind of playing other end of the spectrum, because I don't want to we don't need to be alarmist about alcohol. We know that it's toxic. Can we be in better relationship with it? Right, right. It's it's such a personal thing. And yeah, I think you just you have to figure out what works best for you. And and yeah, and I agree. Like I think maybe for me, the sweet spot is like that one drink. And sometimes it's just being really present with Ryan because we're just sitting there with that cocktail and we're there's no distractions, there's no cell phone or anything. And so some of it's just the presentness that's happening. Mm-hmm. But then if I have two or three drinks, then the next day I'm like, oh, maybe I said a little too much or I said something stupid. You know, it's like the one <laughs> drink is like the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah. But, and it's important that you know where mm-hmm. that is. I, yeah. I think we could do a whole episode about this. I want to throw one more thing in a study that I read recently. I'm not going to read the whole thing right now. I'll link to it in the show notes. But they actually found that drinking alcohol, because of the way it impacts the amygdala, it actually is reducing stress on the body temporarily, which then helps people with stress, anxiety, potentially reducing, you know, risk for cardiac events. So mm. I don't know. Could be some fascinating. Kind of it's like a little yeah. brain break potentially. Again, if you're in moderation and you yeah. know your sweet spot. Yeah. And there are potentially better ways to manage your stress, we know. But <laughs> just saying. All right. Yeah, but today is all about the research. So I think that's interesting that it's kind of giving like a break to the brain, maybe temporarily. Yeah. Cool. All right. More to come on this. Definitely. Stay tuned on that. All right. So we have Hannah Went coming on. She has had a lifelong passion for longevity and breakthrough, disruptive technologies that drive radical improvement to the human condition. She attended the University of Kentucky and graduated with a degree in biology. During that time, she had multiple research internships studying cell signaling and cell biology. After graduation, she worked for the International Peptide Society as their director of research and content. Through work in the integrative medicine industry, Hannah saw an opportunity for methylation-based age diagnostics and started True Diagnostics in 2020. True Diagnostic is a company focusing on methylation array-based diagnostics for life extension and preventative healthcare, serving functional medicine providers. True Diagnostic has a commitment to research with over 30 approved clinical trials investigating the epigenetic methylation changes of longevity and health interventions. Since True Diagnostics' inception, they have created one of the largest private epigenetic health databases in the world with over 15,000 patients tested to date. Hannah has since created Everything Epigenetics, where she shares insights on how DNA regulation has an impact on your health. And I will add, so Everything Epigenetics, she is on Instagram for that, but that is also the name of her podcast. So if you want to take a deeper dive, she has some really amazing experts on there. She is just amazing. I think she's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Just blown away by everything that she shared today. Me too. I want to be Hannah when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, me too. Me too. All right. Here's Hannah. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Hannah, to the Biohacker Babes. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Renee. I appreciate you having me. It's also uh, glad to be with you, Lauren, as well. Yes. So great to meet you. Yeah, I'm yeah. super excited to chat about hopefully all things epigenetics, get into the weeds of it too. So just really excited to be here and appreciate you having me. Yeah. Um, well, we first met in person at 
A4M mm-hmm. last December, and we've chatted a few times since then. I just love the work you're doing. I think you're you're such an expert in this field. So I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this one. So for kind of like a big picture overview, so I think our audience has heard a little bit about us talk about you know biological age versus chronological age, some of the different tests on the market, but we really haven't gotten to like the epigenetic methylation side of testing, true mm-hmm. diagnostic, and what you bring with that. So. I think just like big picture to kind of kick it off, how do epigenetics impact our health span and lifespan? Oh yeah, that's a heavy loaded question to start off, but I love it. (laughs) I love it. Um, You know, I want people to think of epigenetics just as a biomarker. That's all it is, right? Your listeners are very familiar with biomarkers by now. And if we just say that we can only measure biological aging outcomes through epigenetics, we would do we would be doing epigenetics a huge disservice. So think of, uh, you know, cholesterol is a really good example. Back in the day, we only had cholesterol. Now we have HDL. Now we have LDL. Now we have particle size of HDL and LDL. Now we have particle size um, of of other uh, factors uh, regarding cholesterol too. So it's this ever growing outcome. And that's exactly what we're getting with epigenetics. So even though it started with biological aging, we're learning over time that it's almost able to predict anything as long as we have the data behind it. And we can talk about some of those new predictors as we get more into the weeds of it. But what we realize in in its start with aging is that it is really going to be predictive of uh, lifespan and health span. So you can get biological aging metrics that are kind of these overarching ages, ages of your immune system, uh, immune cell deconvolution methods, pace of aging, telomere length. So it's this all encompassing um, kind of panel that gives you a baseline and, and kind of puts you at a starting point. And then you can make changes to hopefully modify those outcomes for the better, thus increasing your overall uh, lifespan and health span too. Mm. I love that you call it a baseline because I think we could kind of label it all kinds of things. And this is certainly a driver of our podcast. It's like, if we have information, then we have something to work off of. And I think with a lot of the testing out there, it can feel like a sentencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said we're going to, it's starting our journey. So this is where you begin. And then we have opportunities. So how do we even sort through that information and figure out What's the path from there? Like, what are we being shown in terms of opportunities? Yeah, I mean, the the report is uh, pretty heavy if you're new to this. I'll be completely honest because we like to give you all of your data, right? We um, here at True Diagnostic give you published validated algorithms as it relates to your health and want to give you a full picture because if you really think about it, you're cells are even aging at a different level compared to the cell right next to it. So you're aging in all of these different ways. And we really believe that you need to take this holistic kind of overarching approach and and look at everything synergistically. And I'll be the first person to tell you, I'm obviously obsessed with epigenetics, but epigenetics isn't the complete picture either, right? You're probably doing a lot of multiomic biomarker testing and even adding that in conjunction to, again, get this more whole body picture. But we have some algorithms that tell you, you know, your overarching biological age, and that's what I've like coined your historical based aging process. So how you've been aging since your inception until now, that can be frustrating for a lot of people if they're older, because they're like, what the heck I'm doing everything right. And that's when you enter like the pace of aging metric that tells you how quickly you're aging at this very moment in time, which can be more positive because it's a reflection of like, you know, a three month, six month running average or so. So we're taking pieces of the the puzzle and and trying to put them together and, and guide you on the best uh, recommendations from, you know, lifestyle, supplement, medication, or procedural based perspective. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the pacing because mm-hmm. like biological age itself, I mean, I'm going to get into the different clocks and how we're measuring that, but like I've mm-hmm. seen such a wide array of tests in ages. Like I've been as young as 18. I've been as old as 42 and I'm 36. So it's like, okay, so where am I really? But then the pace yeah. of aging, really, it tells you what you're doing. I think you said like in the more recent time span, is that working? So like yeah. clearly in my teens and twenties, I did a lot more damage, I think, than I've done probably in my thirties as I've been a biohacker and been more of a health enthusiast. So I think the pace is, is a really exciting thing. So Let's start with the basics, like the different mm-hmm. clocks, the different generational clocks to explain that, because we really haven't do- uh, dive- dove into that on the podcast. Yes. Yeah. This is super important. I think this is a fundamental, you know, again, understanding of epigenetics and, and what it is, what it means, because like you just said, Renee, there are a lot of companies out there who offer these biological age clocks. And what we know is epigenetic DNA methylation is going to be the most precise, accurate, sensitive way to measure it. But still, there's a lot of companies who use DNA methylation and epigenetics to report out a biological age. So what we then want to ask ourselves when when looking, and it depends on, again, the outcome you wish to receive and uh, maybe the application. But we'll start with uh, the first generation clocks is, is what they're called. These really were the first clocks ever created. And they were created around 2011 and 2013, uh, usually by uh, Dr. Steve Horvath, which probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with too. He's out of UCLA. He's a pioneer in this field. He'll probably win a Nobel Prize for this work. Um, I actually got to flew out and meet him before we started True Diagnostic, which is pretty awesome. Um, and he has a wow. twin too, as a little fun fact. So he does a lot of experiments um, himself with biological ah, aging. I didn't Love know that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So little little side note, but uh, and, and he's great. We could not be where we are today in this field without him. However, what he did is he basically took biobank samples off of the shelf and he said, based on their epigenetic DNA methylation signatures, what is their chronological age? So he was trying to get closer and closer to the chronological age of that individual. And that's how we noticed that these epigenetic methylation markers can be predictive. Because if you tested with a first-generation clock and your age comes out, still a biological age, comes out older than your chronological age, you're at increased risk for almost every single uh, disease, chronic disease, and death as well. Now, we don't care about chronological age um, in the you know medical community here because everyone pretty much knows their birthday. But there are still really great applications. For example, they're used to identify the age of DNA at crime scenes if you know they're they're trying to locate a suspect. Um, they're used for refugees to see if they're old enough to seek asylum. They're even used for um, you know people who may have been adopted and just don't have any birth records. So they still have applications. But I think from a biology perspective. They don't mean much. Oh, that's interesting because so I was like, everyone knows their birthday, but oh my gosh, no, there are right. instances where that could be insanely helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. so they have, you know, their their applications too. And and again, that that is really what started this really booming field. I call it I think we're going through an epigenetics revolution currently. So um you know, we we couldn't be where we are with without those. But what what happened and when things really started to change was around 2018 and 2019. Uh, Dr. Morgan Levine, who I know you you've had on the the show previously, she's actually she was Dr. Steve Horvath's postdoc at UCLA. Then she went to Yale, and now she's at Altos Labs again with Dr. Steve Horvath. She really created what we coined the second generation clocks, and this is going to be different. Um, they're going to be a little bit better, and I'll tell you why. How they're creating these clocks is they're taking biobank samples off of the shelf, but in conjunction with those biobank samples, they're also grabbing a lot of other multiomic data. So it could be 
um, for her, for her clock in particular, she just used like a lot of blood-based values, like a typical uh, CBC panel. So she's giving more power to her algorithm. Um, and why and how we know those are better is because they are going to be more predictive of almost every single chronic disease and outcome compared to those first generation clocks. And that's the real point in the application of these clocks is they have to be related to clinical outcomes or they're no use for us. We need to be able to know that we can change them, reverse them and affect them, uh, hopefully in you know a positive way. So um, Dr. Morgan Levine's PhenoAge is an example of a second generation clock. There um, is a DNA methylation telomere length uh, second generation clock where with the uh, biobank samples in methylation, they also use telomere length, right? To be able to make a predictor of biological age based on your telomere. So you can really make a second generation clock by using any underlying um, uh, other other types of biomarkers. Hmm. Yeah. And telomere okay. length. So that is still valuable. I know like, I remember mm-hmm. like 10 years ago when I first did it, that was kind of like yeah. That was the way to test your aging, you know? <laughs> and then it was like, oh, but now we can also test for telomerase activity. And like, but but it seems like we've come a long way from that point. Yeah. It's still helpful. Oh, yeah. No, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. So there's a paper just called Biological Age Predictors that came out in 2017 comparing all of the ways you can measure biological age. And what it said about telomeres is basically um, they've been very well validated, meaning they've been studied, you know, so much, but they have extremely low predictive power or hazard ratio. So hazard ratio being, hey, how can we take a biological age predictor, telomere length in this case, and report out disease outcome? And it's very, very small. So we, um, True Diagnostic actually offers a DNA methylation telomere uh, length test. So we're quantifying it by looking at epigenetic methylations with that second generation clock I just mentioned. And it's going to be more of like a cardiovascular risk association um, and more of a senescent cell check-in as well. So we don't look at your biological age based on your telomere length because we have those better clocks to measure uh, biological age. But if you're in a lower percentile, when we're comparing you to the population, um, we would say you have more senescent cells compared to people of your same chronological age, and you would want to take a senolytic to clear those out. So you're kind of like clearing out the shorter telomeres. We say it's like cutting the um, like worst five people off of a basketball team. You're like getting rid of the bad stuff and kind of increasing your average, right? Which may be helpful in the long run. Yeah. That's a good analogy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay. So it's only an additional thing for those people that may be at cardiovascular risk. What exactly, I guess I'm just curious exactly what the telomeres are showing in those conditions. Yeah. So in, in terms of the, the telomeres themselves, our DNA methylation telomere length report um, is going to, I, I want to make sure that you know, your listeners know that the DNA methylation telomere length report that we do are going to have two and a half times the correlation value to age-related outcomes compared to your quantitative PCR-based testing. So even though we don't like telomeres as an age-related biomarker, they're going, the, the method by which we measure them are still going to be, you know, better than your traditional CRP or excuse me, mm-hmm. um, quantitative uh, PCR. Uh, but the DNA methylation telomere length, they're going to outperform leukocyte telomere length and predicting things like time to coronary heart disease, time to congestive heart failure. Um, it's going to have a stronger association with overall death and a uh, stronger association with predicting smoking history as well. So those are kind of the, I would say the, the, um, you know, heart outcomes that it's related to. Okay. And are you overlaying at all with any blood chemistry or like calcium artery scores? Is that helpful? Um, that would definitely be helpful. I think to create a better telomere length predictor of those outcomes, right? So um, we could definitely always be adding those those blood-based values on top of it to, yeah, make better better predictors. 
the more so, information, the better. Yeah, yeah exactly. So with the senescent cells, if someone were to be taking a senolytic product, and mm-hmm. we've talked about that on the show before, like qualia senolytics, something like that, would that skew the results? Like, do you need to take some time off of that if you're going to do the test? Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's kind of like, Hey, do I want to know how this supplement is affecting my telomere length? Right. So if, if they wanted to understand that, then yeah, go ahead and take the test. If, if you want to get a a really clean, Hey, just how am I aging in general? Probably, you know, stop taking everything for three months or so, and then take the test to get like a, a, a pure reading without anything else affecting it. But what we've seen in the trends within our data is people who take those senolytic combinations like, you know, your quercetin, physetin, resveratrol, tyrosobin, curcumin, um, they're going to be in higher percentiles of our population. They're going to have those longer telomere lengths compared to people, yeah, their same chronological age. Got it. And okay. what kind of frequency or duration over time are you seeing is producing the most results or how quickly maybe can you see some results from senolytics? Yeah, I, I think we can see them within a six month uh, time frame. Um, you know, within with that telomere data, um, we're still trying to figure out exactly uh, what we're finding and and kind of what molecule it's due to. So we've done um, a disatinib and quercetin trial, um, and we've done uh, I think disatinib and physetin, quercetin and physetin. So I think we need to look at one single molecule rather than combining them together to see you know okay which one looks looks the best and and what's the true signal that we're getting here? Yeah. It's exciting. I I mean, I wish that I had like all of the accessibility to all the tests all the time. I just would test, especially this new senolytic, which (laughs) has to be cycled, right? Uh, The one we're taking two days out of the month. You're like, is it working? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious as well to hear if you all have any, any thoughts on if you need to cycle it, I guess, or if you need to take it daily, right? I see some some supplement companies saying, hey, you can take it daily, but it's at lower dosing. So I think we could even do kind of a dosing schedule and see how our testing is being affected by that as well. I think that'd be another interesting insight to gain or look into. Yeah. Well, what is your opinion yeah. on that? Because I guess my understanding, and you know, heck of a lot more, if we're constantly yeah. clearing those senescent cells, and it seems like we're kind of taking away the natural healing abilities of the body, right? Like we don't inter- want yeah. to interfere too much. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that, but I don't, I don't know then if that's like maybe doing lower dosing for one month on one month off, right? Like still, still cycling it, but should we do the higher dosing for just a couple of days that in that particular month? So I, I don't know. I I've always been curious about that. I think we still need the data to show us, um, which one is, is more beneficial for, you know, our own underlying biology. Yeah. Yeah. I think Qualia has done some interesting research on that. And I mean, that's how they came to the two days on, four to six weeks off. Um, I don't know the exact stuff that went on there, but I'll see if I can pull some of the research and put it in the show notes if anyone wants to look at that a little bit deeper. But um, also, before we hit record, you mentioned a new study. Yes. Can you share more about that? Exactly. Breaking news. Yeah, breaking news for everyone listening. Um, so yeah, this is another second generation clock um, that True Diagnostic has actually created. So we've actually been uh, open for three years, uh, starting in July of, of 2023. So it's been really exciting. And we've had this research study going on for those three years. So it's been a very long journey. Um, but here within the next couple of months, we're getting ready to release what we call our omic M age. So kind of our multi-omic methylation biological age clock. And kind of every single second generation clock to date has only looked at one or maybe two uh, other factors, other biomarkers um, 
But here, what we did with our studies, we took actually 5,000 biobank samples, and we did this in collaboration with Harvard. Uh, Dr. Jessica Lasky-Sue is our uh, metabolomics queen over there. She's absolutely amazing. Um, But we took these 5,000 samples. We ran um, their epigenetics through True Diagnostic. We ran uh, their full genomic panel, so looking at their genetic variants. We ran about 2,500 metabolites on them as well, and about 8,000 untargeted proteomic analyses, along with a little bit of transcriptomics, and then their phenomics, phenomic outcomes as well. So the biobank, the biobank at Harvard was very, very valuable to us because we're able to get data of, you know, what disease did this person end up having? When did they maybe pass away? So we can even predict those things with this specific data set. And in particular, really what we found is we created a clock that's going to be the best at predicting, um, you know, all sorts of different outcomes. Uh, the algorithm, that omic M age in particular, there's about 39 clinical values that we include in the production out of that omic age. So I just named like thousands and thousands of, you know, proteins, metabolites, et cetera. The, the ones that were most significant in terms of predicting age would be those 39. Um, and I don't know all 39 of them off the top of my head, but we're able to do some really cool things with that, that data set. Um, essentially, Again, the point is being able to predict, measure, and then take action. So knowing those 39 uh, you know, clinical values, metabolites, proteins that make up that omic age and affect that omic age, we'll be able to go into each of those separately and say, okay, maybe we need to take more of this supplement or you know, perform this routine, et cetera, et cetera. And those 39 things that I keep talking about, those are going to be called um, MRSs or methylation risk scores. Basically meaning um, it's like a combination of DNA methylation markers and a weighted sum or average for that particular outcome. So for example, we have a methylation risk score of HbA1c where we can predict your HbA1c just looking at DNA epigenetic methylation data. Um, So we're really going to be able to dive into a lot of these other biomarkers, which is why epigenetics is so exciting and kind of what we were talking about at the beginning, using it as more of a biomarker. You know, again, I know your your audience is very, very familiar with things like um, NAD biomarkers, so NMN, NR, um, plasminogens, things like spermidine, your omega levels. We'll be able to quantify all of those by just looking at this epigenetic data. Oh, interesting. So even before yeah. doing blood chemistry, you're like the yeah. fortune teller. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, that's good. Right <laughs> so I know that study, and again, don't quote me on this. I, I need to get get up to date on, on all of the news. I know that study just came out, um, I think, regarding spermidine, that you're not able to measure spermidine very well in plasma levels, right? Um, before and after supplementation, which... Um, it's not helpful. Um, so actually the, the DNA epigenetic methylation we found is very predictive of spermidine levels. So we can do your test, you know, before and after supplementation and see if that's actually increasing those spermidine levels in the blood. Um, so again, the epigenetic methylation markers are so specific to that one person. It's fairly cheap to do. Your uh, data is really ever growing. Um, and then it's more of, again, a predictor um, of what's going on right now. And it's, 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 your epigenetics obviously does change, but it's stable enough to tell you what's going on within, you know, that three to six month running average to see if maybe you need additional supplementation or, you know, maybe you need to take some supplementation away. So we're going to get really, really personalized um, in the future here. Yeah. That's and so exciting. Do you see that becoming more accessible than serum testing? Um, I, I do, I do. There, there are some experts that quote, uh, the epigenetic methylation testing in general will replace like 60 to 70% of what, like even your GP is doing, um, which is crazy to say, I think it'll, 
yeah, they say like a decade. I think it'll be like two or three decades before we see that because let's be real, things move really, really slow. And then for people to be able to change and, you know, adopt this type of testing, I think it'll take longer too. So I do see it becoming more affordable just because I think the insights are going to add more value um, over, over time. So I think, you know, for how quickly we can get results back, it just being, you know, a finger prick of a blood sample set, essentially, you know, you're, you're always going to the office to take blood and do other things anyway. So kind of just sending that in, getting those results very quick and, um, them being actionable too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Side note, since you mentioned spermidine, I'm yeah. curious, I mean, because I believe spermidine impacts, I think it's nine out of the 12 hallmarks of aging, which is, oh, yeah. I mean, that's like a pretty insane percentage. Do you feel yeah. like spermidine is like potentially one of the top supplements we can be taking for biological age? Yeah, I I I love spermidine. I think it's great. You know, I take it myself, but um, I think the research is just so limited. That's why, you know, epigenetics as equally as exciting as it, it can be so frustrating because it's so new um, that we need kind of these clinical interventional trials and, and kind of the before and afters to, to see that. So I would say um, we're definitely still still learning. I wish I could could give you a better answer. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Great. <laughs> I'm just so interested yeah. and curious because you're so steeped in the research. Like, then, do you ever get these like kind of intuitive pulls or feelings about things, or you just hold into? Let's wait for the conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I get so excited about everything. So the the great thing about true diagnostic is we mostly work with healthcare providers that are you know, in the integrative, functional, preventative, whatever you'd like to call it, anti-aging space. So they have a lot of uh, data, uh, you know, that comes along with their patients. So we're able to see like subjectively what's working, maybe before it becomes objective in some type of of clinical trial. Um, There are some things that are like really obvious, like, uh, you know, DHEA works really well to mitigate those glucocorticoid uh, receptor elements and lower your cortisol levels. We think NMN and NR look, looks really, really good right now. For biological aging, there's no published interventional trials quite yet. Um, I think some are are starting to to begin. We're really huge fans of, of rapamycin. Um, you know, I know a lot of people do it. Um, I, know... I was going to ask that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to ask about rapamycin. Uh, I want to know about rapamycin for animals. Thoughts? My dog gets it. <laughs> I give it to my dog. She's Help a, me. I want to give my dog rapamycin. Wow. She's a big old Bernice Mountain dog. You know, I think they have the, like the shortest lifespan of any dog. It's it's like so sad. It's like six to seven years, I think. But yeah, you know, those those uh, research trials have been well validated. Matt Caberline from Washington State University, they do the dog aging project as well. They see an increase in lifespan of like thirty percent in dogs in general. So I'll just yeah, I'll give my dog. You know, she she likes it. Put it in a little piece of cheese, and she gets excited. Wow! Um, oh my gosh! Lucky. So yeah. How yeah. old is your dog? She is. She'll be like three here coming up. Yeah, in a couple months. So she's the best. I'm. I love animals. They're just you know great. So yeah, oh, yeah. Lauren, you could give your dog some rapamycin if you can get a script. <laughs> That's the next step. How do I get yeah. a script? Okay. Yeah. But yeah. good to know. I I was very curious to hear your opinion. So lucky stay dog. tuned too, because um people care more about their pets than they do like their best friend. Um, there are a lot yep. of companies I think you'll see come out um <laughs> that are creating prescriptions for animals and then even like biological age testing for animals and dogs in particular as well. So I think you'll you'll be seeing some of that very soon too. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Oh my very gosh. Exciting. I did not even know this was a thing. Yeah. Like yeah, animals. There are some clocks out there, but they're first generation clocks. And, you know, okay. that'd be helpful. Maybe if you adopted your dog, right. And you wanted to know how, how old it was, but just, 
yeah, think about those those clocks and 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 what you want to know about your dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else do you do since we're on the topic of your dog? And uh, I think you're probably really supporting yeah. longevity. What else to support good health? Yeah. I think Renee, you mentioned this before we hopped on the call as well. You know, I've done more report reviews. I'm, I'm claiming the title than anyone else in the world as <laughs> relates to epigenetics um, for true diagnostic yeah. reporting, of course. The people who have the best aging and what I try to adopt more of is just like doing the lifestyle factors, right? Like I'm telling you, like the no one wants to hear that. It's boring. It's intuitive. But the people who are doing the lifestyle things right, they have the best aging, like those people who just have a simple life. Um, but in particular, I, I definitely practice caloric restriction. There is a trial called the calorie randomized controlled trial. It's spelled a little weird. It's like C-A-L-E-R-I-E. That just got published in Nature at the beginning of this year, like February 2023. And um, that's just a 10% overall caloric restriction in healthy non-obese adults. So it's it's not much. They attempted 25%. No one could do 25%. Um, and so they lowered it. And yeah, the Dunedin pace was actually the only clock. Um, and we can talk about that one later too, to capture that change, to slow down the Dunedin pace. So again, it's not necessarily like time-restricted feeding or um, intermittent fasting, which again, still still has value depending on your personal goals. It's just reducing your overall caloric intake. 10%. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Is that a daily 10% or can we do one week on, one week off kind of thing? Hey, biohackers, here is a fun pop quiz for you. How many sailors throughout history died from scurvy caused by a vitamin C deficiency during the time of Columbus? A, 20,000, B, 200,000, C, 2 million. Do you have your answer? All right, drum roll, please. The answer is 2 million. Can you believe 2 million people had to die before we figured out this vitamin deficiency? Here's where it gets even crazier. There is another little-known deficiency right now, potentially hurting millions of people around the world. And the disease it's causing, amongst potentially many things, it is causing insomnia. According to a study published by Academic Press, magnesium deficiency is a leading cause in sleep disruption in both children and adults. The problem is, not just any magnesium will do. Recent studies have shown that there are actually seven different forms of magnesium, and our body needs them in the precisely right balance for proper sleep. There's really only one magnesium supplement on the market that has the full spectrum of all seven forms, and it is called Magnesium Breakthrough. I know you have heard us talk about it because we love this product so much. I have to tell you, when I take this stuff, I just feel complete, like my body is finally getting something that it's been desperately needing for a long time. If you want to learn more about this formulation, Magnesium Breakthrough, you can go to magbreakthrough.com backslash biohackerbabes and use the code biohackerbabes10 to get 10% off your first bottle. If it doesn't fix your sleep, your digestion, and energy levels like it did for us, Or if you're not satisfied for any reason, they will give you a very prompt and courteous refund on the spot guaranteed. Again, to check it out, go to magbreakthrough.com backslash biohackerbabes and use our code biohackerbabes10 to get 10% off of your first bottle. There is a very good chance that this is the missing link that your body has been craving, and we do not want you to miss out. All right, biohackers, let's get back to the show. Yeah, it would have to be continuous. So that that yeah, study okay. went on for yeah two years, and 
again, that, that study seems so simple. You're probably thinking like, what the heck, Hannah, like duh, caloric restriction helps. And like, we actually don't know, um, right? We can't, it'd be so unethical to like restrict babies of their calories when they're born to when we like become older. Right. So what they did in the study is they said, wait, we have these really cool biological age clocks, the pace of aging. Let's see if it captures the change. And yeah, the Dunedin pace, like I said, was, was able to capture it. So it's, it's a really proof of concept, fundamental study. And what I learned from Dr. Daniel Belsky out of Columbia university, who uh, does a lot of the research within the Dunedin pace is they're doing a 10 year follow-up um, of that study. So that's the beauty of it is, is we can do, do follow-ups to kind of see how those cohorts are performing. Mm. I mean, it's a much more reasonable approach, 10%, but I'm just yeah. so curious because it's just, it feels like it's just been lobbed around in the industry and research. People are like, it's everything. Yeah. And then you have people like Peter Atia, they're like, don't believe it as much as I did. But like, if we really clarify what he's talking about, you know, it's this swing from a massive amount of fasting to something more reasonable. And I think probably 10% fits in there, but then people go like, what does that mean to me? Yeah. Yeah. And again, like yeah. don't perform caloric restriction if you're pregnant, breastfeeding, if you're trying to, you know, meet a certain muscle mass or you have these certain goals. I will say, Lauren, Peter Atia, I don't think he knows about the calor- uh, calorie randomized control trial because I would say his outlook on biological age clocks, he's, I don't think he's completely convinced yet, um, but I don't think he knows much about the Dineen and Pace and the calorie randomized control trial. I've tried to reach out too, but I haven't heard back yet. So I'll, I'll keep you all updated. <laughs> okay. Keep knocking on that door because yeah. I don't know. He, I know a lot of clients come to me and they're just hanging on every word that he has mm-hmm. and says. So I think it's really yeah. valuable and hopefully he accepts yeah. that uh, information. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll see. But yeah, you know, caloric restriction is great. Um, kind of another lifestyle factor. And we can move on to maybe what we see more supplement medication and um, procedural based wise though is, is stress. Like I know that's so simple as well. I'm like naturally just a ball of stress. So that one <laughs> is a little closer to home for me. Um Epigenetics has a really massive psychosocial analysis portion of of what drives it. So if you can reduce stress levels, if you can have more quality relationships over quantity relationships, if you can control your thoughts, I know not everyone has an internal monologue, but if you can, you know, throughout the day, you can kind of say, oh, like, why did I do this? Or why did I do that? Or you didn't get this done, right? Like talking bad to yourself, like that even influences your epigenetics and how your genes are expressed. So trying to be control, uh, trying to like, we may not always be able to control our emotions, but trying to, I guess, can also have like a better effect on kind of your aging outcomes too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Real quick. So the Dunedin pace, just in case anyone yeah. is not familiar with that, can you do a quick highlight yeah. of what that's looking at? Absolutely. Yeah. This is my favorite one to talk about actually. So, um, you know, we just to find first, second generation clocks, there's a third generation clock, and this is going to be the Dunedin pace or your pace of aging. And the way by which this algorithm was designed is very, very unique. So they took about a thousand uh, people from Dunedin, New Zealand. That's why it's called that weird name. There's also Dunedin, Florida. Um, And they were born in 1972 and 1973. So it's just a birth cohort. They, you know, they see these newborns and they're following them throughout their entire life. Well, they're 52 years old today and they have a 96% retention rate, which is like insane. Like a good one in the States is like 60% if you're lucky. Um, so it's just a really unique study. Um, but what they did in that study is at four different points in their life, and they're taking a fifth follow-up right now, they took a lot of um, uh, just like body function biomarkers where they did like different DEXA scans, um, you know, things, simple things like like BMI. They, they did like dental imaging and gum health. They're looking at pulmonary, um, cardiac. So all of these different things. Um, and then also like their blood-based values, typical CBC panel. 
And they were able to create this algorithm of how quickly you're aging at this very moment in time, biologically for everyone, chronological year, because they have all of that longitudinal data. So think of it almost like a speedometer. I always end up like doing that with my arm. It's like a speedometer. It's a a value between 0.6 and 1.4. So if you're right in the middle at one, you're kind of aging one biological year for everyone, chronological year. If you're at 1.4, you're aging 40% quicker. If you're at 0.6, you're aging 40% slower. And this algorithm, I think by far, we'll see how it matches up to our omic age. But right now, before we launch that, it is the gold standard for measuring the effectiveness of just how you're aging right now, how you respond to certain interventions. It's the most related to mortality and morbidity. It is going to be representative of a lot of quality of life-based metrics. So people who have a faster pace of aging, they have um, like weaker grip strength, uh, slower gait speed. Uh, worse cognitive decline over time. They even have faces that are rated as older looking. Like Renee, I think I showed you that photo where like yeah. everyone's 45 years old chronologically, but like the oldest people who have a faster or who have a faster Indian pace, they look so much older phenotypically than like the the 10 average slowest Indian pacers. So it's a really cool image to to see. So it's going to be related to, yeah, all of these, these different outcomes. But um, the story behind it's great. Uh, our collaborators at Duke and Columbia University are absolutely amazing. And uh, yeah, they'll continue to follow up with the group. And I think as long as like funding allows, they'll keep measuring them as time goes on. Hmm. That's so cool. So with that min max, like the bookends, the 0.6 mm-hmm. and the 1.4, is that you've reached those bookends just based of what off of what you've seen, or you've predicted that you can't possibly go beyond? So it would be the the first one you said. So I actually, I get this question all the time. And I always said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So I finally asked Dr. Daniel Belsky about this. And he said, basically, that was just what that cohort allowed. So got it. For like simplicity's sake, yes, those are like the end bounds, but they don't have to be. Like if another cohort was performed and, and you know, you, you kind of took those same data points, you could get a little bit slower. You could be a little bit faster too. That's just kind of what they saw in that particular study. But yeah. I will say that study, so the training data set of everyone being in New Zealand, you know, it really helped by reducing exposures. Everyone was going through kind of the same things in their their life. So that's the uniqueness of that data set, but it has been validated in a lot of other populations. So that's what really matters with these algorithms is, hey, does it work in other ethnicities, you know, um, male, female, um, other chronological ages, right? It has to work in, in kind of all of those different aspects and areas. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder I, if like someone like Brian Johnson, is he point four? Like, I, yeah. You know, how, how extreme so, could we I think get? Point six, right? Yeah. I've heard yeah. he's point six, but I didn't know if that's just because it doesn't, it doesn't go lower, but so oh, that's his, the best score. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, his, that's a good point. His score in particular. So you're kind of referring to like the rejuvenation Olympics that we're doing where, um, you know, like the goal is to never cross the finish line. Um, but yeah, we started that with Brian Johnson and, you know, we didn't know he was originally testing. He was just like doing our tests on the side and then found these amazing results. But what we're actually quantifying is you have to have three Deneen and pace test. And then the first and third test have to be at least six months apart from each other. So what was so impressive with his is like the reversal he saw based on his chronological age, that percentage of change, because it's more impressive for someone who's a hundred years old to be at 0.6 than like a 20 year old to be at 0.6. So the Deneen mm-hmm. pace like slightly increases as we become older chronologically. Ah, mm-hmm. any kind of um, gross conclusions about gender or age closer to that point mm. six? Are you seeing more females or I, I guess age, obviously yeah. we would throw that up, but what about gender? Yeah. You know, 
I'll have to do an analysis with the Dedeemed and Pace. I don't want to say I would assume that it would be the same, but like for the overarching biological ages, like men are just older, like period. I see that all the time um, just because there's that sex paradox where men typically, you know, die younger and they just mm-hmm. age quicker compared to women. So I'll have to see if it's the same for the Dean pace. Um, I will say I was doing like a report review one week um, with two women and they had a Dean pace of like 1.35. And I was like, should I cancel these calls? I'm so scared to talk to them. I was like, did we do something wrong? I checked QAQC. Everything looked great. Their sample was in perfect condition. Um, I found out they were both pregnant. So we see like massive increases in Dunedin pace, which we we knew that. I just didn't know they were pregnant. So I was very relieved when I hopped on the call and they told me that. But I was like, wow, that yeah. that's the highest I've ever seen. Is that a temporary swing? It is. Yeah. So there's a really good paper out there called um, Bio... I think it's just biological age is increased upon stress and restored or increased with stress and restored upon recovery. That's why Dr. Jesse Poganik, he's out of Harvard University, and he looked at uh, severe COVID-19, unelected surgeries, and then pregnancy. And we do see increases with all three of those events, but kind of after time goes on, you see those completely go back to, to baseline. Hmm. Okay. So what else can we be doing to slow the pace down? What are the other big things besides calorie restriction? Yeah. So that's, I I think, you know, from a lifestyle perspective, I'll I'll just go over them very quickly. You know, no smoking, no alcohol consumption whatsoever, improve insulin sensitivity, reduce your toxic load and exposure. That's actually huge. We can tell you where you live by your zip code, essentially, by look from looking at your epigenetic methylation markers. So they're so representative <laughs> of kind of the exposures you surround yourself with. So obviously we can't like pick up and move where we live, um, but you could be in control of like, hey, do I have a water filter? Do I have a shower filter? Um, let me look at like the ingredients, um, no plastic bottles, right? Using like all glass, looking at your cleaning, cleaning supplies, like just trying to do like a, a de- internal like household detox load um, is always a good idea to, to try and be in control of that as much as possible. So that, that's that's a pretty big one too. The I wish that I had a test after living in New York for as long as I have. And then I actually spent the last 18 months in Maryland. Mm-hmm. And I assumed that when I went to Maryland, that my sleep would be deeper, just overall quality of sleep would be better. And I wasn't seeing any massive changes in my data, but I'm Mm. curious if I had done the PACE test before and after, if there would have been more cellular changes. Yeah, I I definitely think so. And and again, I'm assuming... Do you live in like the city, city in New York? Yeah, like, the city, yeah. city, just all <laughs> the pollution. <laughs> no, so the reason I say that too, I was just talking about uh, this with someone last night is um, also like the amount of green space you surround yourself with is actually better for epigenetics too. So one of the studies they did in particular, it was looking at children who were born with like more green space around them and not necessarily in green space. Like you could bring plants in your house or office or whatnot. And the children who were surrounded by um, plants and things as they became older, they actually had um, epigenetic methylation changes. And what they did as an outcome test was they had a, a higher IQ. So that's like a some some pretty crazy data. And uh, there are a couple other studies just showing, you know, increased green spaces have, yeah, better epigenetic signature markings as well. Wow. Plants make you smarter. I'm going to go shopping yeah. after this. <laughs> that's what I said. I said, that's my excuse to get more plants. Like I have so many in my house. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. I don't have any plants. It's terrible because my, my cat Cats owner. Eat. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Lauren, you had the idea that I should like hang them from the ceiling or something so that the oh, cats yeah. can't get to them. Uh, knowing your cats, it's still going to be a bad idea. 
Yeah. So I'll I just actually fly had... through the air and catch them. <laughs> they probably they probably would. Jump jump from you, the bookshelf back there and yeah yeah get, exactly. get your plants. I I had a Roomba get my plant um actually and like the the glass and everything just like fell and the dirt was everywhere when I came home one day I think it, it was a pathos so it was like so long and I think it got stuck in the leaf. Oh, no, <laughs> I was like what no. in the world? Yeah, it was like kind of a, a little horror story. Oh shoot! Oh, I love those. I love the pathos. Oh yeah. Man. The the alcohol though, I ha- I have to ask. Yeah. So you said no alcohol consumption. And yeah. I, I this is the big debate because you know, every once in a while you hear a study that says, you know, women that have two to three drinks per week seem to mm. live longer than those that have seven plus or zero. And I don't know how much yeah. of that is because those people tend to be maybe more social, less lonely, have more community. Like, of course, there's other factors. Mm-hmm. But you said no alcohol. You see that yeah. Damaging. So at Morgan Levine was on this original paper. It came out like, I don't, I don't even know, a while ago, meaning like probably four to five years ago in epigenetic years. But she published on just like an association based paper. So like more chicken equals better, like intrinsic biological aging and some things like that. And they said, hey, one glass of wine a, a week and or one 12 ounce can of beer a week actually has shown better epigenetic aging. So we would tell people that at the beginning, we we're like, here's the paper, here's the data, here's the association. But what we've learned now and from just seeing it in, in our study, and uh, now there's a lot of papers on like, you know, tobacco, marijuana, kind of alcohol associations and epigenetics. Um, we don't recommend any at all. Um, we just see all around negative effects. Now, in particular, uh, people who have alcohol use disorder, which is seven drinks a week for women. Uh, double that for men, they have a 2.22 year intrinsic epigenetic age acceleration, which again, like if you're not a drinker, but if you meet up with friends in a weekend, I mean, as a woman, you could easily drink like, you know, seven drinks or glass of wine every night. Like if you have a glass of wine every night with your dinner, like you technically, I guess, have alcohol use disorder, right? You meet that threshold. So it can add up relatively quickly. And I think Renee, you make a good point. Hey, people who drink, you know, this glass of wine once a week, like they live longer. Like those are probably the people who, like you said, have a really good social life. They're having quality conversations. Maybe they're like living more of that Mediterranean blue zone diet um, and they're like low stress. And so I think, I think we need to understand kind of more of those um, social determinants and those aspects too, to really kind of make a gamble there. So yeah, many variables. Sense. I'm just curious, <laughs> right. like, how much can we hack this? Like if we're really controlling for all variables and we're upregulating detoxification, mm-hmm. maybe taking all the supplements to kind of clear the acetylaldehydes and the de- the toxins, maybe taking, you know, B vitamins, molybdenum binders. How much can we really help ourselves, do you think? <laughs> yeah. Or is it just too personal and too many variables to assess? So I, I think we can. I think we can help ourselves. True Diagnostic, we actually released a really cool report. We can tell you how much you've drank or smoked across your entire lifetime um, by looking at your epigenetics. So when you're like, oh, wait gosh. a second, how can we hack this? So basically what we do is this. We compare, <laughs> it's funny, what you say you drink on your intake survey with what your methylation tells us. So we don't use any any survey data to for our reports, but in this one, we compare because then it adds value. So what we're comparing against one of those MRSs, those methylation risk scores, which is a combination of methylation signatures that are predictive of alcohol use. And then we're putting them in a percentile to say, where do you compare with other people who say they drink this amount? So I've done report reviews with some of my healthcare providers who say they drink regularly and they're in like the 98th percentile. And they're like, yep, I have a couple glasses of wine with dinner every single night. Um, There are some who say, oh, I only drink once. They're still in like the 70th percentile. I'm like, hey, do you drink a little bit more than 
you know, once per week. And they're like, yeah, you know, you caught me type of thing, but we can reverse it. Like that, that's the benefit of these epigenetic methylation markers to your point, Lauren. I don't think we know what to do yet to exactly reverse it, but people who stop drinking, I mean, they'll, we'll still be able to pick, like I had a, I had a provider who stopped drinking, um, for like a year and a half or so. And so they put never, you know, they, they have, they don't, haven't drank, but I mean, we could still pick up a little bit of methylation signature on them. Um, just because again, it's going to leave an imprint on, on your epigenetic DNA methylation for some time. Okay. Very oh fascinating. Yeah. Exciting. That's big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I would love to see my report. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the 20s. truth serum. I'm like, you're lying. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, you know, the other insight, cause people are like, well, how is this helpful? And I'm like, well, it's not just like you're lying, you're lying and pointing fingers, but if they're telling the truth and they're still in a higher percentile, they may have a low tolerance to alcohol mm-hmm. or low threshold. And I've found that to be so true when I'm doing these report reviews, they're like, yeah, I take one, I, I drink one glass and I'm like, Oh, quote unquote lightweight or like, I have to sit down or, you know, I get massive hangovers on one drink. And I'm like, yeah, your methylation is saying we're still picking up a signature, um, even though you don't drink. So you may want to dial down on alcohol consumption just generally. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So the signature could have equal impacts in two different people, depending on the tolerance. Yeah, correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, I have like one or two drinks and I definitely can feel it the next day. <laughs> and then I have a friend that can drink like, I mean, he's a he's a guy, so I, he can drink more naturally, but right, yeah. he can drink like two bottles of wine in one night. <laughs> and I'm like, Whew. no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not something to brag about. So, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slightly enviable. Slightly. <laughs> yeah. What so, about, oh, we have so many questions. We're competing here. <laughs> can we talk I'll about sleep go. deprivation and how that's showing up? Yes. Oh, sleep. Gosh, this is a hard one. It has not been studied much, um, which is so crazy to me because now we have like the wearables and the tracking data, and we can talk about how wearables and epigenetics can be measured um, afterwards too. But there's like only a few select studies on sleep. There's one in the women's, uh, a women's health initiative study where they basically looked at uh, quality and quantity sleep. And in terms of quality, they looked at different um, insomnia based events throughout the night. And what they noticed, again, more of an, an association, I think we need need more data, but um, they basically just noticed that people who have more uh, insomnia-related events are going to have poor sleep. Um, they didn't even find a connection between um, quantity of sleep, like number of hours of sleep. And we know that that is like essential to to good health, right? I mean, I guess for for most people, I, I would say. So um, I do know some researchers and people, we had one of our, our uh, Cornell researchers here in our lab uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he said, yeah, I've always just have slept, you know, only three hours a night and I'm, I'm good to go. And I just stared at him and couldn't believe him. I mean, it, it, he was telling the dead truth. He's like one of the smartest people I've, I've ever met. So I, I think all that being said, there needs to be more studies on, on sleep, but obviously it has to be a huge component. Yeah. Three yeah. hours. Yeah. I want to, I want to follow this guy around and watch everything he does. Yeah. It did not add up, but I was like, okay, you know, you're, you're yeah. Very intelligent person. I'm wondering about that yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've heard that with some people with like five or six hours, they're like, my sleep is great. Yeah. I wake up without an alarm. I have energy all day. Like, why do I need to sleep more than the six hours? If I feel amazing, I'm like, it'd be hard to yeah. argue that. He has to be taking a nap. Probably just didn't tell us that three hours of sleep at night and then maybe a nap in the middle of the day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> He's doing another four hours in the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We Liar. need to get eyes on him. Hmm. Quick pivot to something I had mentioned before we hit mm-hmm. record the inter 
a generational component. Like how much of what our grandmother did is impacting us. Yeah. So Renee, what you're talking about, it's a mouthful. It's the inner transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Yeah. Transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Um, But yeah, so this is a really interesting idea that even though our epigenetic methylation markers can change, there's a huge heritable genetic component to it. So, you know, if our grandmother smoked, that's going to leave a negative impact on us. If our grandmother ate really well and didn't smoke, that's going to leave a positive impact on us. So from a human uh, study perspective and, and what research shows is we're, we're able to go back like three generations. Now, I was also talking about Dr. Michael Skinner at the beginning, who's at a Washington uh, State University. And uh, he's like, has coined that term. He's dedicated his life work to this. And when I originally heard him speak at PLMI in Seattle with Dr. Jeffrey Bland last year, I was scared. Like I wanted to cry um, because basically what he's doing is he's looking at animal models. I want to make that clear. He can now trace from an F0 generation all the way out to F20, different signatures of toxins, essentially. And why that matters is because number one, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, doesn't have any laws against generational-based toxics. And that's going to be very hard to change here in the US, Europe. They're working on it in Europe and and kind of maybe almost doing things too quickly, changing rules and regulations too fast. Um, But I'll, I'll give one example. You know, 50 years ago, when we had a malaria outbreak, they gave everyone who had malaria DDT and, you know, that heal them. They were good to go. What we realize now, 50 years later, is that people who have taken DDT as, as it's a toxin um, actually are have increases of having obesity. And 50 years later, we're now going through like an obesity epidemic, right? So it's those connections where like, oh, we don't think about it. You know, it, it cured malaria. It's, it's all good. Uh, well, you know, what's the actual negative impact? And, you know, those people who are going to have DDT, they're going to have a signature on their epigenetic methylation. They're going to be more likely to become obese. They're going to pass that down to their children. Children's going to pass that down to their grandchildren. So those connections are wild. Like that topic just absolutely blows my mind. Yeah. How (laughs) do you change that narrative and not be terrified and turn it into action? (laughs) Maybe just even for yourself, some personal advice. So, yeah, I mean, I, I asked Dr. Skinner that he's, yeah, he, he's great to talk to. He's, he's funny. I asked him that as well. I said, Hey, like, are we all doomed? Like, what, what do we do? And he's like, you know, you can change it to an extent, the epigenetics that like you're in control for, but there are some epigenetic signatures that are so ingrained into like our DNA that like, you're not going to be able to get rid of it fully. Right. And that just put like the nail in the coffin. I was like, I was like, tell me something positive. Um, but he was saying, you know, no, I mean, there are certain signatures that yeah, will not change. And, and there are some exceptions for it. Yeah. Epigenetic methylation markers that can't change being some of the transgenerational ones. Yeah. I, when I think about this, I think about our great aunt Lauren, we talk about her a lot on the show. Cause she's, she 98 now 90, she'll be 99 this year, 98 and a half. Oh, nine and a half. And, and she's kind of the anomaly. Like she has not really eaten that great. She's never been in a gym. I don't Mm. believe, um, I think probably lower (laughs) stress, you know, so I would love to actually, we should do a true diagnostic test on her. It'd be really interesting to see. But anyways, I think about like, so she's two generations above us. Right. But then two generations above her, like her grandmother, how different was the planet then, you know, with like toxins and things. So I wonder if like, maybe because of that age gap, she's able to get 
kind of get by with doing less versus now our generation, we have to do all the biohacks. We have to optimize all the things because we're kind of fighting a bigger battle than maybe she did for 98 years. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I I think it makes sense. And I think the positive takeaway from all of this is too, is like, you're still in the driver's seat. Like you, you, you still are in control of a lot of your epigenetics. You can't control what your mother did, what your grandmother did. Right. We may never know, like, you know, what, what our mothers and what our grandmothers did in, in their early youth as well. So you're still in control for a lot of it. And, you know, maybe they are passing on signatures that are good. You know, I know I don't have children right now. I mean, maybe, be in the future. I don't know, but like, I don't think of my future children every day or grandchildren every day, right. When I'm doing things, but I I think it's more of like the environment we need to pay attention to. Right. And and again, kind of like those rules and regulations and people being involved more in like the government policies and and changes, which again, I know people probably think is a little bit more boring, but like, those are the things that are going to move the needle when it comes to a lot of those toxics and exposures that, you know, are again, less of less in our control. So you're saying just being more active and like signing petitions, something connected to like EWG or what other? Yeah. Yeah. Engagement? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think um, and, and more. Yeah. Like more research being done on like, you know, like certain pesticides or, you know, what's happening? Where's our where's our food being farmed at? Right. Like like really diving into more of like sources um, you know, just because it says organic on it, is it really organic? Like you go down the conversation about like, where do you get your eggs from? You know, free range cage, like whatnot. So I think being more, yeah, aware of that probably. And just like supporting local, but understanding like what local is doing in the first place. Right. Um, kind of making sure that, uh, you're, you're, you're getting the, the, um, high quality foods that we want to give our bodies. If that's kind of the route you take. Yeah. Can I ask you, do you have any comment on lab-grown meat? Oh, I don't know. I haven't really dove into that a lot. What, what's like, what's everyone saying on that? Well, I think we're of the opinion that regenerative that, farming is something that needs more intention, uh, attention yeah. because the soil provides nutrients, like it takes care of the environment, this circle yeah. of life, whereas lab-grown meat is just cutting that process off entirely and trying to recreate nutrients in a lab setting. I, like even if you can have those nutrients, we're losing kind of the consciousness of the planet and energetics. I guess that could get a little, yeah. legal, but I, I mean, again, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't eat it <laughs> that right now. I probably <laughs> wouldn't do it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think you take away a lot of like the soil and like the natural component and kind of that entire cycle. Just, I, I totally agree with you on that, Lauren. And also like where, the animals again are feeding. What kind of farms are they at? Like if you take a cow in California versus like Lexington, Kentucky, the soil is going to be different. Like you're going to get different meat from that, right? It's like um, the same thing with like yeast and why like it doesn't really taste different, but like why sourdough can be different in like different states, right? Like your environment is going to change. I, I just don't think people realize how much science goes into it and kind of all of those life cycles. Like I'm picturing a, uh, an image from like my biology book where it's like, you can see the the ground and then the grass and then it going to the cow and then, you know, out of the cow, whatever. But I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't recommend it. Conclusion. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Well, I'm like really excited to pay attention to see if we can, yeah. can see kind of these methylation signatures once people start eating that. I'm a little terrified of it. Yeah, I think I think dietary wise too to maybe add more than just the caloric restriction. Some one study they done on the Dash diet, the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. It's just quality food, more whole grains, legumes, 
bread, less meat, less sugar, sweetened beverages, less sodium, more fruits, more veggies. Again, pretty intuitive. We're doing a, a study right now with Dr. Joel Furman on the nutritarian diet um, with the G-bomb. So that apparently they're hypothesizing, of course, that it's going to be better than that DASH study. So again, I think, yeah, I think it's, hey, if, if you're questioning what you're eating, then you probably don't eat it. Um, and uh, more, again, just quality over quantity. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah. There's again, definitely stress that comes with the questioning too. So I'm like, if there's stress coming up, even if it's just oh, perceived yeah. stress, I'm like, oh, not worth it. Let's stick with what I know and trust. <laughs> yeah. Yeah that's, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Stick and with I think, what looks like food. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> agreed. The planet. And yeah, meat's already just kind of weird in, in the first place. You got to, yeah, you have to get quality meat and stuff too. But I think, I think, um, you know, it's everything in moderation. Like, uh, when we were talking about the drinking one, I had one person describe it to me once as like buckets, like you have all these lifestyle buckets and you're like, okay, sure. I have a big sweet tooth myself. Maybe I'm going to eat like a, a chocolate after dinner or a couple nights a week or whatever. But I also, you know, work out and I'm in the gym lifting weights like seven days a week. So I think it's just like understanding who you are, what you're willing to give up, what you're not willing to give up, um, but making it your lifestyle, like your habitual routine. So then when you, you know, maybe do have friends and you go out and have more drinks, like don't get mad at yourself, like accept it. But, you know, we have to hold ourselves, I think, to a high standard. Um, And like you said, Lauren, yeah, we beat ourselves up or we, you know, question it. Like we know when we're not doing the correct thing. So I think it's just making it your, your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. I think it's what we're doing. I don't know, maybe 80% of the time that's really mm-hmm. making the big difference or maybe even 90%. But, and then when you do the other things, the 10% of the time, yeah, don't beat yourself up and cause all this extra stress and cortisol to be mm-hmm. running rampant. So mm-hmm. yeah, amazing. Hannah, well, thank you for sharing so much amazing wisdom with our audience today. If we can ask you one final question, uh, a final piece of advice, something our audience should start doing today to optimize their health. Oh, that's good. Make some me time. Like, uh, yeah, you know, prioritize yourself, right? Like go do something you love um, that you haven't done in a while, whether it's like even just like taking a break and going and taking a walk or whatever. I think that does more for our health than than we realize. It's like, just slow down, take a break, do something for yourself and treat yourself with kindness. Thank you for that permission and advice. Yeah, I will take You're it. welcome. <laughs> yes, happy to do that. Yeah. Hannah, where can our audience find out more about you or just connect with you in general? Yeah. So you can um, find my company at truediagnostic.com. Uh, it's T-R-U and then diagnostic is singular. You can also find me at everythingepigenetics.com. Just feel free to reach out. You can find me on Instagram at everythingepigenetics. Would would love to talk to anyone if uh, you all have questions. Perfect. Thank you Great. for that. Yeah. yeah. We'll link to all of those in the show notes for the episode so everyone can easily follow you. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much, Hannah. This was such a blast chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.